Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. I'm Sean Kane. It's never been easier to become an author, but in many ways, it's also never been harder. While self-publishing, blogging and crowdfunding have opened up new opportunities for writers, there are also the challenges of dwindling author earnings, the declining sales of literary novels, and just the everyday pressures of life to navigate while writing. So it's a good thing to have things like the Desmond Elliott Prize, which is intended to help debut UK novelists write a second book. Today, I'm joined by two of the three shortlisted authors up for the Desmond Elliott Prize this year. I've got Paula Kokotza of My Own Blood, the Guardian's very own, uh, whose debut novel, How to Be a Human, explores loneliness and wildness and humanity's relationship with nature. And we've also got Pretty Tanasia, who regular listeners will remember came on the show last year with Carmilla Shamsi. And uh, she's talking about the same book, which is her debut, We That Are Young, a retelling of King Lear in modern India. Gail Honeyman, who's the author of Eleanor Oliphant, is completely fine, is currently overseas and can't be with us today, but we have Preeti and Paula. Hi. Hello. Hi. <laughs> well, first up, congratulations. And I know some people are very cynical about prizes and the significance of them, particularly when it comes to books and literature and how many book prizes there are and whether that cheapens it in any way. And But a, a huge part of the economics of books and art and I think generally a lot of financial benefit comes with prizes and the sort of critical judgment process that comes with them. So whether or not people like that is kind of another point, but the Desmond Elliott Prize, was, which was set up in memory of the late literary agent to reward specifically debut novelists by giving them a bit of money to help with their next book, I think is a really, really important thing, particularly as authors um, are sort of struggling a lot of the time to find their feet, particularly financially, to make that step into writing full time. So I think it'd be good to start with both of you talking about what was the decision like when you decided I'm going to write a novel and I'm going to try and make it as an author? Was it a very weighty decision for you or was it almost incidental and you realised you'd, you'd actually done it? <laughs> Paula, how about you? So it was quite recent for me, just a few years ago, and it wasn't a weighty decision, but it felt like a decision I almost didn't have a say in. It felt quite inarguable in a funny way, because I was working at the time. As you said, I, I work here at The Guardian, and I had two young children and no time really. And I just decided I had to write. I mean, I just started um, almost without a sort of a mental decision. 
And then I applied to do an MA um, because I realised it was going to be very hard to continue to write without making it a timetable part of my life. Mm. I didn't feel it was something I could just squidge into the gaps of time around all the other things that needed time. I, I felt I had to be able to say, OK, on Friday, that's what that's what I'm doing or, or on Tuesdays or whenever it was. But it had to become formal somehow. And so was it a process that you fit writing in around your life or did you have to really make time specifically to have that time alone to get in the headspace and and write? Yeah, I I feel that life actually had to fit around the writing in that although the writing was taking up the smallest slice of physical time, kind of perhaps I had seven hours a week when I had both childcare and no job to be at, in terms of kind of emotional and, and imaginative engagement I was always elsewhere well god that sounds terrible doesn't it what a (laughs) bad mother I was then um but yeah so it took up more of my emotional and imaginative and mental time and energy than than my other pursuits did or or that was proportionate to the physical time it took let's Mm. say and how long did it actually take from sort of starting to write how to be human and it hitting bookshelves um I wrote the first draft in a year and the second draft in a year and then I sold it at that point. Mm. And then it was just over a year before it came out. So it was about so three years old. Roughly, yeah. And, and Preeti, how about you? How did uh, writing fit into your life? Well, I had always wanted to be a novelist and write fiction. It's my first love. I didn't give myself the right to do that until I was 35. Um, I had been a young carer since I was, till I was 28. And after that, the person I was caring for, which was my mother, she died. And I had to... I had to make a decision then, you know, I had to get my life back together and start getting paid work and making good on the promise of a university degree and so on. And that took me into writing in a roundabout way, first of all, working with a human rights organisation, working with young people across the UK, and then um, reporting for an advocacy organisation on minority rights. And I kind of got to the phase where I had been talking about, I really wish I was a writer for so long. And my friends and my, my partner were like, you know, you just have to do this at some point. And I started looking into courses for quite similar reasons that I had to have this time that was allowed. But it was very much about allowing myself to mm. say, I'm on a course and therefore I have to do this. I took the MA in creative writing part time around my job. And then when I felt like I had, you know, proved to myself that it was worth sticking on, I applied for the PhD um, and I was lucky enough to get funding. So I quit my job. And you use the word, like, giving yourself permission. I mean, I think I get the sense a lot of the time with people that are not necessarily just in writing but in creative fields and producing art that they sometimes feel a bit of guilt or a bit of selfishness because they do need to take that time by themselves to dedicate themselves to something that isn't another person that is entirely involving just you and your creative forces and your imagination. Was it ever that you felt selfish or you know guilty for needing to dedicate the time personally I think it was because I just felt that it wasn't so much selfishness it was more like unless there was a formal framework and a justification for me taking the time to do this piece of work I should be doing something else I should be doing something that earned money was more productive had goals that you could say I've done this and look at my job it's contributing in some way to my family life I I suppose that is a kind of selfishness but it was more like thinking yes I can 
do this as well. And how long did it take for you to write We That Are Young? Because it's such a, it's a chunky book. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's a long novel. Um, I, I'm very averse to fat shaming novels. <laughs> so, so let's just call it, I don't know, involved. <laughs> um, I wrote the first draft on the PhD in creative writing over three years which also included doing a piece of critical research work as well. So you write two parts of a PhD. And um, it went out on submission in 2013 to absolute deafening silence. <laughs> um, so over, over your question was, you know, from, from writing to shelf, it's taken seven years. God, that's amazing. I mean, that's, that's part of publishing, I think, that a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people these days tend to, sometimes get around that by self-publishing. Did either of you consider self-publishing at any stage? I didn't. Um, and I think that's partly perhaps linked to that question of yours just now about permission. Because although I didn't feel I needed to justify kind of the selfish act of writing to all, all the different bits of my life, I did feel I needed to accommodate everything and, and keep my job and keep my children. So I think... I didn't want to self-publish because part of what was important to me was to be able to publish in a way that was a sort of a, a formal recognition of something. Um, because I'd never really, although I'd written in my head somehow all my life, I'd, you know, I managed to get to the age of 40 without actually writing a single word of fiction. I didn't feel I had any entitlement in that area. I didn't have a kind of a childhood of, you know, a house full of books and, and parents who were super into books or anything. They had kind of other things they were into. But, so I always felt like um, a bit of a visitor in that world. And so part of um, feeling that I, um, that I could do this was, was about doing it in the formal way so that one felt one did in some way fit. And how about you, Pretty? I never, I never thought about self-publishing because by the time that question would have been in my mind, it had just gone through so many no's. I just thought, well, clearly something isn't right here. Mm. So why would I then put it out there myself? Had it sort of knocked your confidence a bit, that um, whole yeah, process? Yeah, it was. It was really hard. Yeah, yeah, of course it does. It knocks your confidence. You do internalise some of the messages. And I think what I've learned about the publishing world since then is that sometimes those no's are much more complicated than you're just not the writer yeah you know they're very complicated and the writer on the receiving end of a rejection never really knows that until after you come out of the other side of it but you know I really admire people who self-publish in a way because you have to do everything um, mm. from design to proofing and to really get it right and and then find a market takes an enormous amount of time and energy which I just simply didn't have at that stage and when you got to that publishing process, when you were finally accepted, was it surprising? Were there any bits of the process that you went, I was not expecting this, this is something I would have to think about or deal with? Well, I'm published by a very small independent called Galley Beggar Press, and Ellie Miller, who's the, um, she's the editor there, she and I worked very hard on my text, and um, I suppose it was a real privilege to have that attention to detail and... It certainly wouldn't be the book it is without that, even though, you know, they bought it pretty much as it is. There was a lot of work that then went into making it good. I mean, good in the kind of finished builder sense rather than <laughs> good writing. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Paula? Was there anything unexpected, any lessons that you learned while you were uh, um, going through that process? Yeah, I, I mean, it was a very long time. I know it sounds quite quick, but the, the gap 
um, between selling a book and seeing it published was, for me, it was over a year in which I repeatedly went through the text from one end to the other. Um, read it so many times, you'd think it was impossible to read a book that many times <laughs> in such a short space of time. And read it in lots of different ways. Read it, some my book features a fox. I've read it, edited it, for instance, just for the fox from start to finish. Edited it for each of the main characters from start to finish. Then did a line edit with a ruler um, so I could just look at the words above the ruler and that took about three months just for one edit. Um, So it was laborious and it felt like it went on and on and on. Um, But at least I felt afterwards, yeah, I had had done what I could. Um, You have to stop sometime. (laughs) (laughs) And we mentioned before the, um, we're talking about with your your lives outside of writing the book, there's also the financial side of it. Now, we are actually expecting, there's a, um, a survey that's done every sort of five years or so called the AELCS survey. And we're actually due the next one in a couple of weeks' time. And the survey kind of tells us what the state of um, the financial side for UK authors is, which can be really, really informative. And the last survey that was done, which was in 2013, I think shocked a lot of people, whether they were in or outside the uh, the publishing industry, because it showed that the sort of median earning for a professional author in the UK was £11,000. And just to give like people a sense of how little that is, um, it's usually advised the Joseph Roundtree Foundation says £16,000 is about what you need to have a minimum standard of life um, a year in the UK. And only 11% of professional authors, we were talking about this before, Paula, only 11% of professional authors actually earn the majority of their earnings from their writing, which is a kind of a, a huge amount of, it's 89% of authors that actually don't earn the majority of what they earn from their books. Coming in as you have, sort of fairly recently, you know, you're only one book into your careers. Were you aware of that, that that was the sort of state of, of affairs for authors? Or was it really just... I want this book to be out in the world and it wasn't necessarily that maybe you would have a, a, a living from writing books. Mm, I definitely felt no expectation of earning a living from books. Um, I mean, in a way, just just the writing, the creating something, that felt, it feels like, you know, itself kind of sustaining in a way if you've got another life outside it an income stream then you can treat it as as something that doesn't need to deliver financially you can write free of any sense of how much money you might make from it (laughs) having said that if you do want to see it published and in the world somebody needs um to see it as commercially viable you know it needs at least have the prospect of making um, what it, it costs to make and and, what, uh, and repaying someone's investment. I I think um, I'm not surprised so many people have other jobs um, and and 89%. Yeah, it, it's it's a big number, but then I think that's probably right. Authors do need to be in the world as well, and I think a lot is made these days of of people who uh, write and work outside writing I I think for me anyway I've been glad of it if I just wrote and didn't work I probably would barely leave the house (laughs) I'd become a full-time recluse I wouldn't need to talk to anyone um so I think it's good it keeps you in the world and books have to come out Mm. of the world and, and go back into the world and 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 it feels kind of feels right to me but but 
yeah, it's sort of sad as well. <laughs> How about you, Breezy? Well, I think there's so much in what you say, Paula, and it's true about being in the world. It's really important. I mean, we both did degrees to get our writing careers off the ground, and we were taught by people who were also professional writers. So there you have an example of someone who may be a very big name, they may have won awards and so on, but they're still teaching. Mm. And they're not doing that just for the love of teaching. I mean, they all do love their teaching and they're brilliant teachers. But there's also a financial imperative there that even if they are super successful, they're also doing something that makes an, a regular income and puts something back in the world. And they are growing as much as I, I teach I teach now. So I understand that it, you know, you get as much out of it as you put in as well. And I don't think it's that healthy, actually, to do just the other businesses that come around being published, like going to festivals or writing comment pieces in newspapers or whatever. I think it's really important to stay in the worlds which have made you the writer that you are mm. and perhaps further that practice as well. Yeah, I mean, Whatever it is, whether you're a teacher or you're a volunteer or a... I don't know, nurse or something. I mean, all these experiences might feed into your writing. They might do, yeah. yeah. Make space this weekend. Space for films about Chilean romance, plays about millennial angst, and poetry that makes you want to write poetry. Those new jackfruit superfood samosas, or not? A writer that's never been written about. The manager you might love, and opinions you might not. It's your weekend. Make space to be inspired. Pick up The Guardian and The Observer this weekend. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's sort of about once a year now at this rate that Will Self comes out and says the novel is doomed <laughs> as a, a cultural form. Um, and he seems to he seems to view a lot of this through the financial side of things that, you know, even big, well-known names, when you look at their sales, they're often not huge and compared to the 80s and 90s when it was kind of a guarantee that you could then maybe toss in your job and become an author full time. Um, maybe never have had one a job in the first place. Yes, that's true. Exactly. You amazing. Know, inherited a bunch of money and uh, went and wrote on an estate. Yeah. I mean, he seems to think that that is sort of a sign that the novel is somehow doomed. But actually what you're saying, it kind of sounds like perhaps that if, if novelists are forced to be out in the world, whether it is through financial necessity or whatever reason, it could possibly lead to slightly more interesting mm -hmm. books, <laughs> given that life experiences will feed like into if them. If you had all the money in the world, would you still want, want to be in the world? I don't know if it's about being forced, it's about being interested, isn't it? I think so, yeah. With yeah. all the money in the world, you'd still, you'd have to volunteer or, or I don't know, you do, you'd have to put yourself in 
out there in different ways, wouldn't you? Yeah, but I think that's right. I mean, look at Arundhati Roy. She's a real example of someone who was stellar famous. She gets mm. published first novel and it goes 40 languages worldwide. It's, it's sort of a kind of literary phenomena. And she takes that money, she gives some of it away, but she spends the next 20 years doing activism. Yeah. Which is really important. And yes, yeah, she writes books off the back of it and more money gets made and so on and so on. But there are choices that you can make about how you want to live in the world. And I think Will Self should maybe read our books and perhaps then decide <laughs> whether the novel's dead because I, I can clearly see and tell you that it's not. Perhaps the novel is he likes it or understands it, but yeah, certainly I not. I think it might be that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I, was a, I was a bookseller in a past mm. life, but certainly in my job here at The Guardian, I see all the books that come into... The, the building to be reviewed and um, the vast majority of them are coming from publishers but we also get self-published books sent in as well and I hear from people that have worked on the desk much longer than me that we are at a sort of unprecedented volume of books at the moment that we are receiving more and more and more and that might be in part to do with self-publishing but also the fact that the publishing industry is sort of working quite hard to produce as many books as they possibly can for, for whatever sort of business reasons that they that they have do you ever feel the weight of that? I mean, because you are obviously both readers and you'll go into bookshops yourself and you will see your bo- your books on the on the shelves, but you will also see alongside it how many books are coming out at the same time and how many books you are sort of competing with for people's attention, as well as the things that aren't books that are taking people's attention. Are you sort of aware of trying to win an audience or are you sort of very content in the fact that your book is something that is out there and it might find a reader? Um, oh that's a tricky one um definitely I think it's I feel a thrill when I walk in a bookshop and see my book I don't think god there are a lot of books in here (laughs) I think oh there it is it's always gives that little bit of joy and it's right that there are loads of books I think it's great and people will gravitate towards the ones they want I myself stand there reading the blurb and then the first paragraph before I decide what to spend my money on and I like the fact that it's part of that dynamic and part of that choice. And and in a way, I think, or for me at least, the readership, you know, it remains a sort of an abstract idea in my head. I don't sort of, don't, I don't try to, I try not to worry about how many people might be reading or buying it. I feel like that's probably someone else's worry and <laughs> perhaps perhaps when I've written the next one and um and I hear what I don't know and it goes and it goes out to wherever it's got to go perhaps I'll need to start thinking about it more then I don't know but at the moment I just feel the relationship is with the work and the work then has the relationship with the readership and I feel there's that kind of buffer there and it doesn't detract from the joy of seeing it alongside other things. In fact, it's actually quite a nice game to go and see what it's next to. And if it's <laughs> really? next to Lincoln in the Bardo or something, it's like, yes, <laughs> next to George Saunders. Yeah, I don't think there's an author alive who probably hasn't snuck into a bookshop and turned their book face out. Or put, it, put it on the table next do a little to someone admire yeah. or we all, do, we all do it. Um, I love that feeling of going into bookshops and seeing the book. And because there was so much time spent going into bookshops and going, wow, everyone else is writing, (laughs) you know, and wanting to feel part of that community. um, It's really brilliant. And also spotting your friends (laughs) and going, oh, I know her. (laughs) So that's nice. And... No, I don't. I think you're right. I don't think too much about who the reader is or how many books I'm selling and things like that because the publisher trusts them to 
keep an eye on those things. And readers, so far this year, it's just been so surprising to me who has connected with the book, which if I had stopped to think about it, I probably would have said, oh, this person or this kind of reader. But, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a story. Mm. Everybody loves a good story. How it's told is almost as important, or if not more important than what it's about, in a way. And that's been wonderful to get that kind of feedback. There's so many levels of culture where you can find readers now from social media to big reviews in newspapers and so on. So you just never know who's going to find it and how. You're sort of at the tail end of everything when it comes to your first book, really. You've sort of had the the book come out and then uh, Paula, your book's out in paperback now. And Preeti, you've, you've done some promotion work for it and that sort of thing. Is there anything, now you're sort of at the end of all this that you'd wish you'd known at the start of it? Just because I'm thinking a lot of people that are listening are probably authors and would-be authors themselves that, you know, might want to get into being picked up by a big publisher. But was there any sort of surprise or a tip that you would give for someone that was getting into this game? Just focus on the work. Yeah. It's all that matters. Make it as good as you feel it is can be in yourself. And don't give up because... If you've got that sense that it really is as good as it can be to you, then, you know, it takes a lot of commitment to keep on sending it out. And, you know, in my case, someone else did that for me in the end, and that's (laughs) how I found my publisher. But I feel like when I think about the ecosystem of small publishing and big publishing, there's just so many options out there. So if you don't find a home with a big publisher through an agent in the traditional sense, there are more ways to get your work out there and perhaps maybe think about those first even because... Some small publishers are publishing in ways in which you might think, oh, wow, actually, my writing's a lot more like that, actually. And so perhaps I'll have find a better home there and they'll support me more. You know, it's not just about being part of what you consider to be mainstream. It can be, you can find your own way. And how about you, Paula? Mm, I think focus on the work and, mm. and that has to be the main thing because that's the one thing that you can be properly responsible for and in a way all the other things are a little bit beyond your control but then also I think it partly depends on personality if you're the kind of writer who is comfortable on social media you can probably be trying to build an audience on Twitter or wherever and 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 between selling your book and your book coming out you could be making connections following and being followed back by authors who you might then send your proof to in the hope of getting a quote. Um, you know, all these things that, that take up a writer's time and are on, on, on a writer's mind um, if, if a book is coming out. Mm. And I remember that all being quite a surprise to me, actually, just the whole process of sending your proof out to writers whose work you really admired in the hope that somebody would... Um, find the time to read it um, and and maybe have something to say about it. I mean, how did you find that? Because you've got, a uh, just in terms of talking about blurbing, you've got Hilary Mantel on your book, which yeah. is kind of cool. Yeah, but I wrote... Um, she wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been a big believer in the power of a speculative letter, you see, mm. um, for getting jobs or for anything. As someone who's not very good on the phone, it's always been quite helpful. <laughs> so I wrote to Hilary Mantel and to a small handful of other authors whose work I love had to be the ones whose work I really love and hoped and, and was really amazed that Hilary Mantel found the time to read it and get back to me in that great way, yeah. I hope I haven't made it feel like too doom and gloom by talking about the money side the of money. things, but I suppose oh, it is like yeah, the reality of it. it yeah. well, I in mean, some ways it is the reality, but 
you know that well, since I got published I've been asked this question by some people ask me what are you working on next and that's nice because it's chat and I can understand why they're interested to know if you know you move on and then people say how many books have you some people say how many books have you sold and they divide into very particular kinds <laughs> of people <laughs> the how many books have you sold question is from people who don't really read usually yeah and the reality of it is that the pleasure that you get from writing, the intensity of that relationship you have with your work is so private. And then the pleasure of seeing it on the shelves and even someone who writes you a snitty review, you think, okay, well, you read it and you've got, had your say. Great. So the work is finding its own way in the world. There's, that, that's the reality. Mm. Mm. And I don't find these sort of author's earnings statistics too depressing in that although they are low I think probably the percentage of authors who would expect to earn their main income from writing novels must also be pretty low mm. um, because really is, is that a reasonable expectation I think it, it probably isn't and we have to be doing this while we're living our lives and as part of our lived lives and and being involved in that you know economic dynamic is is important I mean that is after all how most people live I mean I have to ask now because the Desmond Elliott is for second book oh it's first book first for support book. for second book yeah how is the second book coming along uh-huh. <laughs> you're both doing very shifty eyes <laughs> um, I'm sitting here <laughs> okay I can well I have been very lucky because I had a grant from the authors foundation um at the society of authors which has enabled me to take two months unpaid leave from work and still pay bills while I was doing it. Um, So I have been working for two months on that. And this morning, I've just laid out my 200 pages on the floor. I did it in thirds because I don't I have a smallish room um, and I so I've had the aerial view and I know there's lots I need to do, but I have I have got pages of something. Goodness. You just did a face pretty. <laughs> I can't imagine to doing that. <laughs> um, I, because my publishing experience has been so different to, I think, what happens when you hand in a book to a big publisher, then it sounds like you have like a year between it coming out and then you do your editing and so on. So I was editing with Galley Beggars until like 10 days before the book came out. God, it was so intense. Yeah. And that happened for a bunch of different reasons, but some things to do with life and some things to do with the length of the book and, and the kind of, and what we were trying to drill down to make happen. So I haven't really had a breather this year Mm. to start working, actually writing, but it seems to have happened anyway around going to different parts of the world to talk about the book, which I've been lucky enough to be able to do as it's come out in different countries, especially in India, where the book is actually set. So it came out here in the UK in August, and then it came out in India in November of last year, and... The response there was just so completely overwhelming. It was fantastic. So there's a lot of stuff that I've had to do around that, which has been brilliant. But all the time, my head has been ticking along into what's going to come next, what's going to come next. And I know what it's going to be. I know the landscape and the geography of that intimately. It's going to be set probably in the northeast of England, which is where I spent half my childhood. And it's going to be really tough. So I've kind of been putting it off because... I know it's going to require a lot of me emotionally, but I'm going to get there. It's all there in my head. I just have to sit down and, and do the and discipline work of finally <laughs> getting the writing on the page. 
Well, like I know that it, it sounds like it might be a, a work of emotional labor, but I'm very excited yeah. <laughs> to, to read it and see what comes out. <laughs> Thank you so much to both of you for coming in and good luck. I mean, the winner of the Desmond Elliott is announced on Wednesday um, and this episode goes out on Tuesday. So there'll be one day's wait if you're listening um, as it comes out. But um, congratulations to you both and good luck. Paula Kokotz's How to Be Human is published by Hutchinson, an imprint of Penguin Random House. And Preeti Tanasia's We That Are Young is published by Galley Beggar. On next week's show, we're lucky to be joined by Michael Pollan, author of The Omnivore's Dilemma and from Netflix show Cooked, who is here to talk about his new book, How to Change Your Mind, exploring the new science of psychedelics. Don't forget you can subscribe and review us, talk to us on Twitter at Guardian Books, or send us an email on bookspodcast at theguardian.com. But from me, Sean Kane, and our producer, Susanna Trisillian, goodbye and thank you for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.